0: So, for those of you who are not aware there was an election last week i called my friend chip rogers to come back on and explain to us what's just happened both up and down ballot and how that's going to impact us in the hospitality industry go america hey chip thanks for coming on uh teak talks i couldn't have thought of a better friend to call to explain what the heck's going on what all the election results mean, all the up-ballot, down-ballot, et cetera. So please, 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 educate us. <laughs> Tell us what's going on.
1: I will do my best. Um, first, thanks, Teague, it's always great to be with you. Good to see you again. Uh, looking forward to Hunter coming up in a few months. So are uh, In my hometown of, of Atlanta, Georgia, where I know events are still happening, um, and the weather is always nice. Um, look, it was a really interesting election, um, season uh, that was truncated in many ways, of course, by everything that's happening with COVID. I mean, for many of us, we didn't really even start paying too much attention until just a few days before the election because so much focus has been on what's happening with, yes. with COVID and was Congress going to pass something or not. But um, before we get into all the details, the best way I could characterize it is this. The country is ideologically probably further split than ever before. And what I mean by that is the people on the right are is, is, Far to the right as they've been and the people on the left are certainly as far left as they've ever been. But if you took the total country, and you'll see this in the numbers that we show and, and how the elections played out, it is almost split right down the middle. And we see that in Congress, we see it in the presidential election, we certainly see it at the state legislator uh, level. So um, we'll talk about all that, but
0: yeah, it's, it's, it's really close. So that feels like a good place to be, right? Sort of in the middle balance of power even though we feel good (laughs) we feel very polarized (laughs) at the moment but it it would it would be a good
1: place to be if 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 two things weren't weren't in place number one if the ideologies of the parties weren't so far apart and that's i think somewhat problematic there's not a lot of people meeting in the middle even though the division is 50 50 and you would think that would cause us to do that uh the second thing is is we're in non-stop campaign mode i mean you know, even though most people across the country are thinking the election's over, as you know, in Georgia, yeah. um, that state's about to get hit with a billion. And yes, I said billion with a B, a billion dollars worth of advertising over the next nine weeks. As for the first time in U.S. history, you have two U.S. Senate runoffs happening in the same state over a nine-week period.
0: I, I don't want it. Can I leave?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that you can't turn on the television. It's nauseating to turn on the television uh, or the radio because that is all you hear, and so many of the ads are just completely deceptive. And I'm not going to say which candidate it was, uh, but because I spend a good, a good portion of my time, almost half my time uh, in the Atlanta area, I get all that uh, information. There was a, a congressional race where I had specific, and I mean very specific knowledge, about the information that one of the campaigns is putting out. And I can say it was an abject lie. I mean, it wasn't even close to the truth. But I'm not going to get into that, but that is so common among all these campaigns, it's just so hard to tell what's the truth and what is not.
0: Yeah, that's, I don't know, I, I, my, the cynic in me says that's been happening for generations.
1: True, um, very true.
0: But we'd like to be in a better place, right, where we at least tell the truth, but that's not well, the case, that's not where we are. Uh, right?
1: if, and, and the problem is, as you know, is we've, we've gone so far away from policy, and that's what's so frustrating to many of us. At the end of the day, the only thing I care that a politician does I don't necessarily care that they're a good person or bad person. Now, let me be clear. I want them to be a good person. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm suggesting. But the lasting implications on my life, our industry's life, everyone's life are the policy decisions that they make. You know, if someone is a bad person, sometimes they're not going to be in office, but the policies they create will last for generations. And that's why it's so important to focus on those policies and, and sadly, during these elections, it's nothing but personal attacks and very little interest
0: in policy. Well, and the world we've created feels like such a media-driven, dare I say, social media-driven world. It's all a headline world that we're in. The substance doesn't really matter. It's what the, what's the headline?
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're exactly right. I'm, I'm, again, not choosing sides here, but I think if you look at the most, the most recent presidential race, and we'll talk about that, um, I think generally most Americans would say to themselves, the vast majority would probably say to themselves, you know, just as far as a, a decent human being, they they prefer Joe Biden over Donald Trump. Uh, but then if you, if you look into the policies, I think most Americans, if you took away the names, would say, oh, the, the Trump policies seem to be a, a, something I'm more aligned with. And 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 that's the debate we've been in is it's personality versus policies. And again, I'm not trying to make a public statement one way or the other, but I think that that race in particular kind of highlighted some of the differences that the country sees.
0: All right, so let's get a good person to give us some good, strong economic policies.
1: <laughs> that's what we need, exactly. Somebody that we can trust, somebody we like, but somebody that's right on the policies. All right, we'll let you run whenever you're ready. No more, no more for me. No mosses. No mosses. Roberto Duran yeah, said so many years you're ago. You're smart.
0: You're smart. Oh well. All right, let's get into it. Tell me, go up ballot, down ballot, tell me what we learned and and how it's gonna impact us at a local level, specifically in our hospitality industry.
1: Well, let's start with the presidential race. Uh, If you go back and look at the 2016 race between Trump and uh, Ms. Clinton, you can see that it was decided by a handful of states uh, with very, very, very tight margins in those states. If you look at the 2020 race, the exact same thing happened again. You have Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, and Wisconsin, which were the battleground, battleground states, and all of them decided by a handful of votes. Now, of course, the complicating factor here is that we really voted in almost a completely new way. Uh, never before has the country seen mail-in voting happen the way that it happened now. We've never seen voting that started months, almost months in advance, at least multiple weeks in advance, and lasted beyond the election day. Uh, as far as the counting process is concerned so it causes concern for people i don't know long term if this is good for the electorate that we have a voting period that lasts that long um, we certainly need to encourage as many people to vote as possible we may need a national holiday on election day but but i think it's good for the country that we kind of narrow that window a little bit and do this in a more orderly fashion so that there aren't accusations of of, of bad things happening uh, nonetheless that's what we're faced with so Point being is the country is very, very divided. If you told me and said, Chip, here are you know 200,000 votes, change them either way that you want, with 200,000 votes among the more than 100 million cast, I could change the election one way or the other. That's how tight it is. So if you look at the presidential level and the number of people that are voting in the battleground states, it was so tight that a few votes either way could have changed it. But at this moment, it looks like uh, we have a president elect Joe Biden and, and certainly we wish him well. I mean, this is the frustrating thing in our country that we've seen happen over the last 20 years that we didn't see when you and I were kids. You know, when when the president won back in the day, everybody was on his on his, his side because there have only been males that have been elected, but on his side and said, look, it's good for the country if the president does well. I hope someday we can get back to that. No one should wish that the president doesn't do well. It's good for our entire country to, to say, look, our country succeeds when our president succeeds.
0: Yeah, uh, again, just part of the world we get in. But maybe maybe Joe's the right guy to bring everybody back together. Who knows? He's got a tough job ahead of him because he's going he's got, he's to get it on both sides, even in his own, in his own caucus. He's, they're coming after him. So I always yeah. do that. Fuck. I really do.
1: No, you're, you're right. And I, I hope he moderates some of his views. He, during the campaign, he had some views that were um, quite concerning to, to us. And I know we're going to get into those things that, that impact uh, our industry in just a minute, but particularly around uh, organized labor. He's got some 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 views that are dramatically different from not just President Trump, but most presidents in, in recent history. So we'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Now we go to the Senate race. We highlight Senate races. We highlighted uh, a few moments ago um, the situation in Georgia. I'll get to that in just a second. But essentially, the Democrats um, did not perform as well as they had expected in those U.S. Senate races. If you looked at the, the polls going into it, um, and I'm gonna use Maine as an example. There was not a poll in Maine that showed Susan Collins winning. In fact, most polls showed her losing by double digits, and yet she wins by almost double digits. Now, that is probably, as my friend Frank Luntz would say, a complete indictment of our of our polling system. And yes. it, it, we may not, polling may be gone. I mean, it may not work anymore. But I'll tell you the problem with that is is that early polling determines momentum and momentum, determines fundraising and fundraising uh, determines uh, the money, of course, that are spent in certain areas. And so it still plays a role, but man, it just doesn't seem to be accurate anymore. So the Democrats did not pick up the seats they wanted. One of the big pickups they really needed was in North Carolina. Um, if you're following that race, you know some of the things that happened there with the Democrat candidate and, um, and some of the things of infidelity and him being a military officer. And, and that probably lost that race for them. Um, so the Republicans uh, will go into the Georgia runoffs with 50 seats. Now, if The Democrats were to win both Georgia runoff seats. They would put it at 50-50, and Vice President Harris would then break the ties that you have in the Senate. But it would be almost impossible to navigate through the Senate on just a day-to-day basis with an exact 50-50 tie. But we may ultimately see that. Now, I don't think you're going to see that. I think uh, the the Republicans win one, perhaps both races in Georgia. Keep in mind that um, the the Georgia law is that you have to have 50% plus one vote. So you have to have a majority to win an election in Georgia. Senator Perdue fell just shy of that number, you know, a few thousand votes under the 50%. And there was a Libertarian candidate in that race that got about two and a half percent of the vote. Now, historically in Georgia with the Libertarian candidates, they've done some post-election analysis and they've shown that the Libertarian candidates usually draw about 80% from Republican and about 20% from Democrat. So if that holds and those 80% um, votes go towards the Republican, you would expect at least Senator Purdue to be victorious. And the other race, um, which was the race to fill the, the seat of, of Johnny Isaacson, who left uh, the Senate because of health reasons, you had 20 candidates involved. So everybody knew that was going to a runoff, because with 20 candidates, you're not going to get 50%. And so you had three major candidates, which was Mr. Warnock on the Democrat side. You had Senator Leffler, um, the incumbent, who had been placed into that position by Governor Brian Kemp. And then you had a member from the House of Representatives, Doug Collins. Those three candidates all got above 20%. Those are the three major candidates. It's now in a runoff between Leffler and Warnock, and we'll see what happens there. Um, I think, in a way, it does help the Republicans that Leffler was the winner because the Republicans um, have been suffering with with women vote um, in the metro Atlanta area. And she would probably appeal more to women vote than, than Congressman Collins would. That's just an assumption on my part. And so those are, that's kind of the foundation of those two races in Georgia, which could ultimately decide the power uh, in the U.S. Senate.
0: You're, you're, uh, you're, you're so smart, and, and I now feels the first election where we have the you know, touchscreen U.S. maps, and we all know more about counties in, I don't know, Arizona <laughs> and Michigan and Georgia than we ever wanted to.
1: Well, stop in Georgia because there's 159 counties, and, and I'll give you, everybody, a one little bit of trivia knowledge that I have on the state of Georgia with the counties. People often ask, why are there so many counties in the state of Georgia? Um, the law, when it was written to create the counties in Georgia, was that a, that a man had to be able to ride on his horse from wherever he resided to the county seat and back in a single day. Um, and so that's why the counties were created so small. Uh, we then, of course, and some who really know Georgia and yourself included, T, because I believe you might live in this county, uh, in Fulton County, Georgia, um, there was, back during the Depression, two of those counties merged to Fulton County, which is the city of Atlanta. And that's why that one particular county is so large and doesn't fall into the man on a horse analogy uh, that, I, that I stated a few moments ago. But yeah, 159 counties in Georgia, some of them extremely small.
0: All right. Man on a horse. I got it. I'm going to show you how far yeah. I can make it on a horse tomorrow yes. when we finish
1: this. I guess it depends on how fast the horse is, right?
0: I like it. All right. Keep going. Keep going. All right.
1: U.S. House of Representatives. This, to me, was the biggest surprise of the night. I think everybody knew that the, the Biden-Trump race would probably be close. It would come down to those states that I mentioned a moment ago. I think most people figured that the U.S. Senate would break one way or the other by a seat or two, and that may still very well happen. The one that is most interesting was, is that most of the prognosticators predicted that the Democrats would pick up about a dozen seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. When all is said and done and the dust settles and all the votes are counted, it looks like the Republicans are probably going to pick up somewhere between five and 10 seats. And it looks like that when the members of Congress come back to Washington, D.C., the Democrats are gonna have a, a uh, advantage of anywhere from about eight to 12 seats among those 435 members. Now, that is very, very difficult to navigate for anyone. Speaker Pelosi, um, whether you agree with her policies or not, whether you like her or not, and about half the country does and about half the country doesn't, you have to give her credit. She's very skillful at what she does in managing the House of Representatives. So I know there's a lot of discussion on the fact that the Democrats lost seats and that her position as Speaker uh, might be tough for her to get reelected to. Um, I put the chances of that happening uh, at very slim. Um, she has helped a lot of people over a lot of years, and I think she will retain her speakership. Uh, but it will be very difficult for her to navigate a, a very slim margin. Keep in mind, the House of Representatives uh, almost always has one or two vacancies. Somebody gets sick. Somebody unfortunately pass away. Um, there may be all sorts of reasons that there's one or two seats that are open. And so, when you look at a slim majority of somewhere between eight and twelve seats, it's going to be very difficult. But for, for all of us that kind of find our, our policies to be right down the middle, it may in fact be good because more deals should be cut. She'll need to work with Republicans on certain issues to get things done. And that's probably a very good thing. Now, the last thing I'm going to say about this, um, which I think is really, really important. I know we're going to get in state legislatures in a minute, but we are heading into what's known as reapportionment. Now, if you think political fighting is difficult uh, during the nine out of 10 years that we're not doing reapportionment, I can promise you that reapportionment is the most political process you could ever imagine because it's politicians drawing their own district lines. Now, of course, U.S. senators don't need to worry about this, um, but the U.S. representatives and the president needs to worry about this because you're going to see a shift because of the census of the number of members of Congress shifting, particularly from the Northeast and the upper Midwest down to the South, from Arizona to Florida, to Texas, Georgia, to North Carolina, which will be picking up more representatives. Now the process over the next year at the state legislature level will be for those representatives to draw the lines for the next seats in Congress, which will be up in two years. And if you think about those states in Texas and Florida and in Georgia in particular, and maybe even Arizona, um, usually those states are, are, are pretty reliably, um, Republican states, uh, maybe not so much in Georgia anymore, but the, the Republicans still control the legislature. Um, so you are looking at a situation where that eight to 12 seat margin, um, may shrink even more in two years. The Republicans might have a chance to take over because of reapportionment. So there is going to be a lot of political pressure just over the next two years during the reapportionment process.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a train wreck. it's not easy uh all right so keep going so tell me what's happened down at the state level
1: great great uh great segue there so um it was almost status quo but there were some significant pickups for the republicans so the way i like to break the map down is between what you would consider red trifectas blue trifectas and those states in the middle and what i mean by that is a blue trifecta or any trifecta means that the same party has control of that that state's house, senate, and governor's mansion. So as we went into this election, there were 15 states that had the blue trifecta, Democrats controlled the house, the senate, and the governor. There were 20 states that had the red trifecta, Republicans both control the house, senate, and governor. Over this election, the Republicans picked up three additional trifectas. So now there are 15 blue states, 23 red states. Now the reason this is so important is because legislation in a state like that. Can be introduced on a say a Monday and be made into state law by a Friday because the same party has control of the entire process. You can introduce it in the House, it can go through the House, through the Senate, and have the governor sign it almost within a week in many states. That is very very important because you know when we think about legislation, the process really is is that you hear about it, you begin to talk to people about it, you begin to form an opinion on it, you then form a a, 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 a policy projection on it, and then you start forming a plan on how you're gonna implement that policy. And, and that takes a long time. But if something can be introduced on a Monday and be in law by Friday, um, it's very difficult to go through that process. And that's why it's so important to have people on the ground in those states with their ear to the ground, understanding what is happening. Something really bad can happen uh, almost instantaneously. I will take you back, uh, Tegan, you will definitely remember this. Uh, to about, I'm going to say, maybe eight years ago, eight or nine years ago, within a three-day process, uh, the state of Georgia implemented a $5 hotel tax, $5 oh, a yeah. night per room hotel tax. And that happened in three days. So it can happen. We've seen it happen. And when you have these states that are all one color, um, it can happen rather quickly.
0: Uh, and, and you just mentioned that seems more like the norm at the state level, though. They're all one way or all the other.
1: Yeah, you're looking at uh, what is that? Uh, 38 states. Right. Uh, out, so there's only 12 states that aren't one way or the other. Uh, but those 38 states, they're either red or, or blue. Mainly red right now, 23 to 15, about two thirds red. Uh, but but yeah, those, those things can happen quickly.
0: All right. I mean, I don't know what I'm pulling for at that level, but uh,
1: <laughs> well, it, but it, it, it impacts us, and and you know, particularly a state like California where. You know, you have such a large percentage of America's hotels right in that one state. I mean, if you look at, at Florida, Texas, and California, just those three states alone and combine the number of hotels, you're probably talking about close to half the hotels in the U.S.
0: Uh, yeah, that's a lot.
1: And all three states are, California's all blue and Texas and Florida are all red. So certainly something to keep in mind. There were right. some ballot measures. Uh, if you want me to yeah. talk about those, I think are really important.
0: Yeah, let's, no, let's definitely talk about measures. The one I'm thinking of that comes to mind is the Florida minimum wage, but I know there was right. several in California. And-
1: yeah, so here's what I think is, is most interesting. Again, I, I think the things that pollsters missed the most was the House of Representatives, where the Republicans were supposed to lose seats and they picked up seats. I think the most interesting takeaway um, is really what happened at the state level on ballot measures Mm -hmm. so you think about a state like i'm going to use california as the best example you think about a state like california where every single elected office is held uh, statewide is held by a democrat Um, they have super majorities in both the house of representatives and the state senate in california so there's there's, the republicans have zero influence whatsoever in california so what did they put on the ballot they put on the ballot a thing called split role now many 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 years ago in california they created uh, a property tax assessment process that says, once you buy a piece of property, you're not gonna get reassessed at a higher value uh, until such time as that property changes ownership. Again. And that has been extremely popular for people in California because their assessments aren't going up. Now, millage rate could go up, so your taxes could still go up, but your assessment is not going up. Well, this year they put on the ballot what's called split roll to say that under residential properties that would maintain but under non-residential properties, which of course all commercial properties, all hotels, restaurants, and everything else, that those assessments would go up on on a yearly basis. The reason that is so important, I was talking to some of my friends that have hotels there. One of my friends said that his assessment would probably go up over 400% because the property has been with his family for many decades. So think about getting a new property tax bill that's over 400% larger than the one you have now at a time when you're just struggling to make it. Now, again, we're talking about California, the unions were 100% behind this, the teachers unions uh, especially behind this, all the government employees were behind this, and yet it lost. And so that was a big victory for for our side, who said this is the worst time to have a massive tax increase. Uh, But you think about an all blue state that votes down a tax increase, and that was an important victory in the state of California. Second important victory in the state of California is on the issue of independent contractors the legislature and the governor there had worked out a deal where they wanted to make all the independent contractors think about uber and lyft specifically but any independent contractor forced them to become employees where they had all of the health care all of the benefits of employees but of course the hours of employees and everything else well uber and lyft and even the uber and lyft drivers said hey we're, we're independent contractors we want the freedom of doing being part of the gig economy They put it on the ballot and the independent contractors, the Uber and Lyft side won again, rejecting what the legislature had done previously. So you had two, um, probably more what you would characterize as free market victories in California. Now flip to Florida, and you mentioned it a moment ago, in Florida, um, Republicans won, President Trump won actually quite easily. Um, Two or three uh, House of Representative uh, Democrats lost their seats in Florida, picked up by Republicans, so you had some switches there. You could say Florida had a a red state day, there's no question about it on election day. But the $15 minimum wage was put on the ballot. And it required 60% of the vote to pass, and it ended up getting 61% of the vote. So millions of people that voted for President Trump also voted for an increase in the minimum wage to go up to $15 over the next few years. Which again, I think is a little surprising to many. And what it tells me is what the president has done, and it'll be interesting to see if we revert back to normalcy, or old times, I shouldn't say normalcy, but old times, Um, what the president has done is make the Republican party almost the party of the working class. He, interestingly enough, being a billionaire himself that you might not think of as the working class, he kind of appeals to the working class vote. And that's why I think you saw that happen in Florida where people were voting for Trump and also voting for an increase in the minimum wage.
0: so explain the California opposite, though. Why do you think
1: that? In California, I think, um, and this is not necessarily common to just California. I think it's it's everywhere. In many ways, there is a disconnect uh, between who people vote for and some of the basic ideology that they hold themselves. I think in California, people vote very liberally, uh, but they also don't necessarily want to see um they're not going to vote themselves a tax increase even though their elected officials routinely do it they're not going to vote themselves a tax increase uh teague we also saw the exact same thing happen in the state of illinois which you would probably say at least from an electoral standpoint is as progressive uh as california uh in the state of illinois on the ballot was a measure to increase taxes on the way it was characterized by the governor on only the wealthy and that was voted down as well. In fact, voted down significantly in the state of Illinois. So Illinois, very deep blue state, voted against the tax increase as well. So I think the message that comes out of this is, is kind of a message that you've heard over the last few decades. People generally like to describe themselves as socially moderate and fiscally conservative. Most people, in fact, say that's the way that they are. Um, you're seeing that cut form its way in, in the ballot box uh, with people Voting, uh, fairly moderate, if not uh, liberal in many cases. Uh, but then when given the opportunity to, to vote on a fiscal issue, voting pretty conservative.
0: All right, this is fun. Let's keep Give me some other props that are working. I mean, California's voting opposite. Florida's voting opposite. Illinois. Give me some other props that we might be shocked. So we go, to,
1: uh, go to Arizona, um, where, interestingly enough, I'm going to use look at Arizona and Colorado, interestingly enough. Um, where Arizona flipped this time. Well, we'll see. The counting still continues there, but Arizona is probably at the end of this election counting process, and it keeps going on and on, will be the closest state in America. That's what I predict. It will be down to maybe a thousand votes either way to decide who won the presidential race in Arizona. By the way, in Arizona, at least one of the two houses flipped from Republican to Democrat, the House of Representatives there, I believe. The, the Arizona Senate state Republican. So it is right down the middle, yet Arizona voted for a tax increase. Um, and we used to think of Arizona years ago as a very uh, conservative, almost libertarian state. Uh, if you think back to presidential politics of the 1960s, uh, it was, it was um, certainly one of the more libertarian states back then. And yet they just voted a tax increase. Uh, just north of them in Colorado, you also had uh, a vote against, uh, for a state that is increasingly turning blue, you had a vote against a tax increase and an attack on what they have there, which is known as TABOR, Taxpayer Bill of Rights, that that prevents the state from spending additional money that they don't have. Um, And they they voted down a tax increase uh, in Colorado. So as you look across the spectrum, it almost made no sense that you have minimum wage increase being voted up in a red state, tax increases voting down in blue states, and then a, a, a reddish, bluish, purple state in Arizona voting for tax increase.
0: Yeah, I don't uh, even more acknowledgment that I have no idea what's going on.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure anybody could have predicted any of this.
0: Uh, I, you know, who knows? All right, uh, maybe we get into some of the other tax sort of things that may come. You know, it, 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 important to our industry, the 1031 exchange, okay, income tax, okay, capital gains tax. Any, insight as to what might happen on those?
1: Yeah, so look, I mean, I'll just make this really, really simple. If the Democrats control the U.S. Senate, and this is not my opinion. This is what they stated they want to do. The Democrats control the U.S. Senate. They will get rid of um, the Trump tax cuts, which mean corporate tax rates will go back up. There's no question about it. Individual tax rates uh, will go back up. Um, and then we really will look at this capital gains tax uh, increase probably happening, uh, but the 1031 like kind exchange uh, may be on the chopping block as well. Now, look, we have fought on this issue for years. We have done the academic studies to show that the 1031 exchange actually ultimately brings more money into the government. Because think about what a 1031 exchange does, and you know this better than anybody. If you get rid of it, all it does is put a hurdle to real estate transactions. It just makes a real estate transaction more difficult, more costly, and less likely to happen. So you're, you're, you're slowing down the velocity of transactions. When you slow down the velocity of transactions, you're slowing down the number of times that a property or a transaction can be taxed, right? right. And when you do that, you ultimately send fewer dollars to the government. And what you're really doing is, is encouraging people to hold on to a piece of property that they otherwise would not hold on to if it were not for the tax implications uh, involved in exchanging that property. And so it's a terrible tax. Um, and to, and that's why the 1031 exchange has been so profitable through the years. It allows people to make those real estate transactions almost like inventory that you would see in a a retail shop uh, to make those real estate transactions without having to pay those taxes at the time of the transaction and delaying that tax liability to a later date. Uh, it has worked for over 100 years. It has been extremely helpful to the real estate injury, uh, industry, and it has brought in more money to the government. So the idea of getting rid of it uh, really makes no sense whatsoever, but it could be on the chopping block if the Democrats control the U.S. Senate. So, again, the real simple message on taxes is this. If the Republicans control the tax, the, the Trump tax cuts, are almost certainly to stay in place, if the Democrats control the, the Trump tax cuts, are almost certainly going to be done away with. Okay. All right. <laughs> I got it. So now, uh, on the other issues, if you want me to get into those, I right, think sure. Let's go. At the top of the list has to be labor. I don't think that you could draw a more distinct difference between two uh, presidents and their ideologies on organized labor than you had under the Trump administration, or have under the Trump administration now, and that you would have under the Biden administration in January. Um, Biden has said himself, and again, this is not me putting words in his mouth. These are his own words, that he would be the most pro-labor president in U.S. history. Now, could he possibly follow through on that? Well, he will certainly have the power to do so in remaking the National Labor Relations Board, of course, remaking the U.S. Department of Labor. Now, there will be a lot of things at play if that happens. You're going to see card check come back. Uh, You're going to see a uh, the joint employer issue is certainly going to come back almost immediately. These are things that are going to impact their industry from day one. Now, the best way to look at this is to say, what has happened? Where where can we see an example of this type of, of union-backed ideology already at play? And I would point to the state of California. If you look at California and the influence that organized labor has on the cities, the counties, and even the state in California, and what that has meant to the hotel industry, that type of of scenario would become national uh, if the policies of California are then placed uh, at the federal level, which is what President-elect Biden has suggested that he wants to do. And so there is no greater difference between these two candidates, or I should say two gentlemen, uh, and their approach uh, on a policy uh, than than with respect to organized labor.
0: All right. uh, What other policies might a Biden administration uh, enact or try to enact that might impact our hotel industry?
1: So immigration is going to be much, much different. Um, You're gonna see an executive order on DACA almost immediately from the Biden administration. They'll probably be challenged in the courts, uh, but I suspect they'll write it in a way that they'll be victorious in their challenging courts. Um, So you're gonna see that. Um, You may see because of the closeness of the elections, uh, there's finally an immigration, a serious immigration reform package put forth. Uh, The president-elect has suggested he would like to do that. And so um, you're almost certainly going to see that. Content, the continuation of building the border wall on the southern border almost certainly will come to uh, an abrupt halt. So, on immigration, you're going to see a, a, a big difference between, between the two, uh, between the, the Trump ideology and the Biden ideology. Now, the one I think is most interesting and where they're very similar that impacts our industry is what we would probably characterize as big tech. So, the Trump administration, for reasons altogether different than the Biden administration, has had some serious problems with big tech. The Biden uh, administration, or the incoming administration, probably will as well. In fact, you've seen uh, many leading Democrats uh, very concerned about the influence uh, that that the big tech leaders, especially around social media, have on on uh, have on the economy, have on society, uh, and in particular our industry, uh, especially with uh, Section 230. So um, there is a, a, a situation that I think uh, is going to play out regardless of. Of whether Biden wins, and it certainly looks like he has one, or if the courts were to somehow overturn this and Trump was back in office, I don't think it would matter. Um, there's going to be a big focus on big tech, and I think both of those gentlemen and their administrations have pretty much the same view.
0: Okay. All right, uh, talk to me about the topic near and dear to your heart, stimulus. Are we going to get any more for our <laughs> industry? Are we going to get any more for our country?
1: So- oh, yeah, the good news is is that um, with respect to the PPP, um, it's it's looking pretty good. I would put it at a better than 50% chance that we see something uh, during the month of December. Uh, so the House and Senate will be back after Thanksgiving. Um, they've gotta pass a continuing resolution to keep the government funded. And we believe that the PPP stands a really good chance of being attached to that, we certainly hope so. Keep in mind before all of the election nonsense started, Everyone generally agreed on on a PPP. It was the other facets of a of a large package where the Democrats and Republicans disagreed. But what you saw happen immediately after the election, in fact, the day after the election, uh, Senator McConnell, who was uh, quite easily victorious uh, in his race, came out and said, "Look, we've got to get something done by the end of the year." That was followed up by Speaker Pelosi, really echoing the same sentiments. And so we're hoping that at a minimum they can agree on a PPP. Now, what's interesting, and I mentioned this on a a webinar yesterday, was, you know, prior to the election, President Trump was not the problem with respect to the deal. Keep in mind that Mnuchin and Pelosi came very close to striking a deal. The president would have signed anything they put on his desk because he needed it. He wanted it. He wanted to have a victory going into the election. The problem was the Republican Senate was not going to agree to that deal. The president was actually lining up more closely with Pelosi. Than he was with mcconnell especially on the overall numbers uh getting close to that 1.8 trillion when she was asking for 2.2 trillion so i don't think the president um is going to be a problem between now and during the lame duck session so if you can have mcconnell and pelosi come to an agreement i think the president will sign anything on his desk then what i believe we will see t is in january you're going to see a much larger package contemplated that's going to deal with unemployment benefits it's going to deal with state and local hopefully it will deal with some sort of liability protection that we desperately need and i want to talk about that in just a second why it's so important but liability protection that senator mcconnell has talked about all along that larger package i think is much more likely to happen in late january or early february but maybe during lame duck we can get the ppp for hotels
0: the, uh, the fiscal conservative in me gets concerned about all the money we're spending. How concerned should I be and we be?
1: Well, I don't think on PPP you should be that concerned. I think on a larger deal, um, there is certainly something to be said for being fiscally concerned about where we are with the debt, which is now $27 trillion uh, with no possible way of of, of repaying. Uh, and, and that is for another show. And, and you and I can talk about monetary and fiscal yes. policy. And it's Excellent. something that Excellent. back in my... Back in my geek days at Georgia Tech, I would have loved to talk about and I'm Glad to re- relive that with you. But, but with respect to um, the PPP, I don't think you have to worry about it too much. Some of it ultimately would be repaid, and the package they're looking at is is not really that that large. But I wanted, to, I do want to talk about um, uh, about what we need to look at with respect to liability protection and why that is so important. Well, Teague, you and I know that the only ultimate solution to the problems that our industry faces is to get the economy going again, get people traveling again. So you really have a a two-pronged problem here, and this is what I remind elected officials about all the time. Prong number one is that hotels, restaurants, and others that are consumer-facing are concerned about the notion that they would face lawsuits. In fact, some of these lawsuits have already begun. They would face lawsuits from people suggesting that they that they got COVID-19 or the coronavirus while at that business at that hotel and that of course it's almost impossible to predict but the reality is these hotels would be settling these out of court making these payments that they don't need to make even before it ever got to court so that's problem one problem two which i like to call prong two of this problem is the fact that employers who need to send their employees out on business and, and kind of reignite that business travel are not doing so because they're feared of getting sued over sending those employees out traveling again and so for those two reasons we need to have liability protection that gives both employers and business owners some sort of uh, protection against lawsuits that are only meant to to end up in settlements anyway and so if we could get that limited liability protection for a limited period of time specifically dealing with coronavirus for both employers and businesses who have done the right thing then i think you're going to have a that's going to significantly help our economy especially travel all
0: right i'll, I'll buy all that uh and by, not,
1: way, and by the way we've got 13 states that have already done that.
0: great let's get more
1: yes get more. <laughs> 37 um
0: more. all right not that you're this has been great chip thank you thank you thank you not that you're a doctor but i'll ask you what's your take on the we got a vaccine 90 percent pfizer and a yeah. therapeutic and some other announcements i don't know if that's coincidence or not but
1: uh not a doctor yeah not a doctor did not stay at holiday Inn express last night um though i love holiday express um look th- that was great news coming out from pfizer and biointech um and they seem to have the lead right now but look there are eight viable vaccines that i see um could could be uh successful within the next three to four months that's all good because this is both medical and psychologically um, there's a lot of people that are are, are simply looking for the 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 existence of a vaccine to return to their normal life. And that's, that's really important psychologically for the country, for the world. Second thing is, and I think this gets overlooked a little bit too much, um, is there are therapeutics out there. If you look at the, the number of people who are dying that actually have coronavirus, the, that percentage of folks has come down significantly. And it's come down because our medical community, of the geniuses that they are, have figured out how to treat this in many ways that we just didn't know back in February or March. And so those therapeutics are actually working in, in making this a less deadly disease, which or less deadly condition, uh, which is really, really important. And then the third thing that I think is really contributing and can contribute in a major way is inexpensive, um, very reliable and almost instant testing. And so we know that the products exist where you can get reliability of close to 98% on tests that can be done, uh, administered with the results coming back in less than five minutes. At costs under $5. Now, once we get that distributed across the U.S. and across the world, think about the doors that that opens up. People getting on an airplane can get tested immediately right there in the the airport and still get on that plane. And you as a traveler can have confidence knowing I'm getting on a plane and nobody in this plane has coronavirus. Same thing in a hotel, at a restaurant, at a music venue, at a sports stadium. If you have instant testing that is reliable and cheap, it opens up a lot of doors that are not open up right now. So give me
0: timing of that. When when is all that?
1: Well, that look, the technology uh, already exists. It's it's how do you manufacture it and get it distributed? So on the vaccine side, I mean Operation Warp Speed, whether you you like the president or not or think he handled this this well or not, you have to give um, him, his administration, and everybody involved in Warp Speed some credit for trying to pull off not just creation of the vaccine, but the greatest distribution effort in the history of mankind. If the US military can pull this off. We will have a vaccine that is distributed, um, at least to those who are most vulnerable, by uh, first quarter next year. That is absolutely amazing. I I mean, no one could have thought that hundreds of millions of these uh, could be distributed, doses could be distributed that quickly. Therapeutics, I mean, it happens every single day. Uh, They're getting better and better. And we've we've got to thank the medical professionals across the country that are doing this. And then with the testing, um, I had a chance Um, just a few weeks ago to talk to the gentleman who's leading the effort on the Oxford study, but also he's the main advisor to to Boris Johnson in the UK, and they've already purchased billions of these tests, or I should say hundreds of millions of tests, billions of dollars worth of these tests, or billions of pounds worth of these tests. And so that distribution is happening there, it's gonna happen in the US as well. And I think it was one of the major airlines just announced recently they're gonna start implementing that test uh, to increase travel between New York and London. And so you're gonna see it happen uh, probably within the next two to three months, T, that these tests are going to become prevalent just about everywhere.
0: I love it, I love it. And on that note, I'm gonna end on a positive note. Chip, you're the man, you're a wealth of knowledge, you're an incredible leader for our industry. Thank you very much for carrying the flag, for championing, for being the voice for all of us, uh, and for communicating, for coming on and communicating to to the industry. we, we need a, We need a person fighting for us and we appreciate the communication.
1: Thank you, Teague. Uh, Thanks for what you do. I always love coming on the show. Anytime you need me, I'm here. Uh, We'll
0: keep it up. Thanks, Chip. You're the man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.